You are listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Uh, before we get started, I, I want to ask you to pray with me for, for my home, Puerto Rico. Um, you know, Puerto Rico went through, uh, you know, catastrophic loss in 2017, I think, with Hurricane Maria. Um, and, you know, financially still recovering, but also the power grid has been in disarray since then, still going through, uh, through a lot. Um, and so there's a hurricane Uh, there was a storm that was going to hit the island last uh, yesterday, I think, um, and it turned into a hurricane right before hitting the island. And uh, thankfully, it's only Category One. Puerto Rico can usually handle uh, Category One hurricanes, but the power grid, as I said, has been in disarray since 2017, and so it's expected that this is going to set us back again. So, it, I mean, while it won't hit us as hard as it hit us in 2017. It, there will be, you know, uh, some effects that will be felt. My family, uh, or my mom is still there. Katia, my wife, her family is all back there still in Puerto Rico. JP and Gracia, who are part of our mission family, their family uh, is also back in Puerto Rico. And so we're, um, uh, yeah, I'm just going to invite you to, to, uh, to pray with me for the island of Puerto Rico. Uh, Father, I ask, uh, we ask as a family of believers uh, that you would cover the island with your protection, that you would cover it with your peace, that you would give peace to the hearts that are still traumatized by the devastating effects of Hurricane Maria in 2017. We ask that you give them peace, that you uh, give them, continue to supply to Puerto Rico the resilience uh, that makes the people of Puerto Rico so special. Um, and, uh, and be there for any recovery effects, Lord. May the damage be minimal or nothing. Uh, Father, we pray for miraculous things to happen. Um, and may, may you be, may, may your glory shine through the response of the church in Puerto Rico and out of Puerto Rico. May people pour into the lives of Puerto Ricans uh, to help them in anything that they might need uh, and protect our family members for those of us that are, for all, I mean, protect all, uh, everyone in Puerto Rico, but give us peace for those of us that are in the so-called diaspora, living in the mainland and missing our family back in Puerto Rico. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you for that, Mission Family. I appreciate that. Um, we are continuing our series, Exploring the Psalms, and what we've been doing is, in no particular order, we're not going through individual psalms, uh, or excuse me, we're not going in, in them in order, so to speak, in numerical order, but rather we're kind of, from the teaching team, different people that are invited to speak, they've been sharing on some particular psalm that either they've been Uh, invested into recently or that they've uh, felt they, they, an, an inclination from God to share on. And so for me today, that's going to be Psalm 19. Uh, what I love about Psalm 19 is that it has kind of the essentials of what makes up the book of Psalms. The Psalm 19 gives us two main aspects, which is first and foremost, the revelation of God through creation. God reveals himself in the 
ordered creation in all of its facets, uh, all of the facets of creation, excuse me. And then secondly, we find that God reveals himself through his word. And then finally, we see that the psalmist has a response to that. And that's such a model for worship in our lives. And again, it is kind of essential uh, in terms of showing not the full array of the book of Psalms, but many of the aspects of the book of Psalms. In fact, there are qualities that are messianic we'll see uh, in this psalm. So first, I'd like to just read it from start to finish. Psalm 19, it goes from verse 1 to the final verse, verse 14. And then we'll kind of sit in the different movements, so to speak, of Psalm 19. And so I pray that God would be with us as we explore this psalm and that he would move within us and that we would have a worshipful response as he transforms us. In Jesus' name, let's read Psalm 19, verse one, starting in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night. They reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the, war of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 19 walks you through different aspects of God's revelation and their effect in us. Again, God first reveals himself through creation. Then God reveals himself through the Torah, the law. And then finally, in his revelation, as we see both the grandeur of God's glory and creation, and we see the law and grace of God in his word, we can't help but be moved. It sets a model of life for us. It, it, it tells us how to live a worshipful life. It shows us how to worship in our thoughts and in our deeds. It shows us how to start our day looking at the sun and being reminded of who set the sun in motion, who set the, the earth in motion and the, the galaxies. It reminds us that God is great, but also through his law that God cares for us. 
that he gives us law not just to set us into a religious rhythm of do and don't do, but that he gives us law because he cares for you, for me. And ultimately, his law, though we sometimes find it hard to understand, is for our good, for the flourishing of our lives, spiritually speaking. In our sinful nature, we sometimes disagree with God and what he recommends for us. But that's what he wants from us. And so when we come to that transformed, renewed of the mind understanding of God's relationship to us and what makes him so good, not just on the beauty, grandeur end, but in terms of his love for us, then we can't help but like Paul cries in, in Galatians to say, I want to live uh, by faith because of the love that you had for me. We can't, and that's paraphrased, of course, but that's the response is to live a life of love for Christ. The first point that we tackle today is that God reveals himself through the created universe. See, the psalmist wants us to see that though obviously creation doesn't speak words like we read in the Torah, in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, that God speaks indirectly, rather directly, I would say, through creation. God speaks to us through creation, verses 1 through 6. That's the first movement of this psalm. God revealed in the created order that he has made. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Now, it says the work of his hands in the NIV, New International Version. But if you go to the ESV, it would say his handiwork, I think. And that almost gives us a better image because it's like his craft, his artwork. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, right? He's not using words. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. Think of this, by the way, just pausing right there for a second. A lot of the uh, Middle Eastern cont uh, context of surrounding the Jewish people had religions that worshipped the sun. But no, the psalmist reminds us that God, he pitched a tent for the sun. Yes, the sun is glorious, but only to the extent that it reminds us of he who is great. God is in control of the gods of other religions. He pitches a tent for the sun, worshipped in some other religions but God says, no, the sun is just a created object that I have made for you to give you light. It is like a bridegroom, the sun that is, coming out of his chamber like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and, make it, and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. You know, there's this misconception, unfortunately, that I think sometimes it's due to how loud some scientists are, but there's this misconception that science and faith don't get along, that science erases our need for God when we look to creation, like this psalm suggests. I look to creation, and I see 
obviously God. And some people say, well, science dismisses that. Well, here's the problem with that. And this is something we strive to do where I work. I'm a mathematics professor at California Baptist University, and not just in the mathematic, mathematical sciences department, but in all departments at CBU, we try to make sure that students are integrating their disintegrated minds, meaning they've learned to see truth as studied by science, natural sciences, social sciences, political sciences, et cetera. They try to separate that from biblical truth. But we try to reintegrate, so to speak. We try to restore their faith perspective. And one of the things that we in our department try to do consistently is remind students that historically and currently to say that the majority of scientists are atheists is false. You just have to look at surveys. If you include the whole of the world, the scientists throughout both Western cultures and Eastern cultures, and even here uh, in the US, if you put them all together, and you will see that the majority of scientists believe in some sort of deity, some form of deity. That's the first thing. The second thing, we get used to seeing people like Richard Dawkins portrayed in the media often. They have a loudspeaker, and so that he writes a book like The God Delusion, and so we're thinking, well, he's an evolutionary biologist. He's got the right perspective. He has the authority to speak on all matters religion. No, he has the authority to speak on evolutionary biology. This notion that science, for some reason, allows a person in the science community to have authority over other areas of truth is called scientism. Scientism is different from science. Scientism is the belief that if something can't be measured scientifically, it's not really truth. It's not useful or pragmatic truth. Well, I'll tell you, history has something to say about that, the field of history. So does philosophy. So does many other uh, areas that can't provide scientific insight. History, for example, is very reliable for us, but nothing in history is reproducible scientifically. <laughs> Are we to say that history, then, is not a true form of knowledge? So scientism is incorrect. Science is correct. And the reality is there's far more believers in the science field than we think. For every Richard Dawkins, there's a Francis Collins. Does anyone know who Francis Collins is? I see Abby knows. I see a few others. So Francis Collins is the current director of the NIH. If you don't know what the NIH is, it's the National Institute uh, for Health. Right, Katya? I'm saying that right? Yeah. The NIH is, she's a MD-PhD, so I got to ask her. <laughs> the NIH is uh, the national, or excuse me, it is the primary funding agency for all health-related research. Francis Collins is a devoted Christian who is the director of it. Bigger than that, right, he, he was a, an incredibly accomplished uh, scientist in the field of genetics. In fact, I would argue the greatest accomplishment in genetics in terms of its magnitude was in the 90s, the Genome Project. And he is the co-founder of the Genome Project, the co-director. Now, here's a person who studies evolutionary biology, who studies genetics, and who is a Christian believer, and who arguably has way more science pedigree than Richard Dawkins. Now, I'm not saying that to pit scientists versus Christians. I'm just trying to dismiss this notion that science and faith don't get along. This notion that science and faith don't get along is quite inaccurate. 
For some reason, we think that because we discover more about science, it should turn us away from God. But in reality, what it does is that it reveals the richer fabric of the universe that has been created by God. At the end of the day, Francis Collins tells us a few things of what turned him from atheism to being a Christian. He tells us the fact that the universe had a beginning, not from the book of Genesis, not from the book of Genesis, though Genesis makes a claim in its narrative form, but from science, the Big Bang Theory tells us that the universe had a beginning. That's Currently, even though the Big Bang Theory is still being developed and still being explored, and there's various takes on some of the more detailed aspects, the reality is the Big Bang Theory suggests that, yes, the universe began. That means space-time began, as mind-blowing as that is, not that this is a science class. Space-time began, both time and space. Now, Einstein was opposed to this. I know this is sounding like a science lecture. Don't worry, I'm going to move away from this. <laughs> Einstein was opposed to this. But here's what's spooky. Equations that he designed to help him understand the relationship between gravity, space, time, curvature, etc. Someone else, a priest who was a physicist, George Lemaitre, took his equations, played with them, and said, Einstein... These equations suggest the universe began. Einstein's first response, because he believed in an eternal universe, was, your mathematics is correct, George Lemaitre, but your physics is abominable. That's not paraphrasing. That was his quote. Einstein, after, thankfully, the Hubble telescope here in California in 1926-ish, had to take it back. In the late 1920s, when Hubble discovers various aspects by looking through a very powerful telescope, Hubble realizes, yo, the universe is bigger than the Milky Way. Can you believe that until the late 1920s, we thought the universe was just our galaxy? Insane! <laughs> Insane! But how did math equations reveal something we hadn't even detected technologically. Some of you have heard of the Higgs boson particle, the God particle. We only confirmed it in 2012. But Peter Higgs, working on math, for some reason came to predict that this particle existed decades before the, we had the technology. So for some reason, there is a mathematical design to the universe. Here's the point. Furthering our understanding of the universe through science only gives us far greater reason to marvel at creation. It's mind-blowing. I'm telling you, it's mind-blowing. The universe started, according to science, not the book of Genesis, the universe started. The universe is fine-tuned to sustain life. Any other universe with any other gravitational constants or other constants, and life wouldn't be permissible. That doesn't prove God, but it is a little strange. And then math works so well. All these things led Francis Collins to turn from atheism to the Christian faith. He, of course, after that, complemented it with reading the book Mere Christianity by another scholar, C.S. Lewis, who also was an atheist and turned to the faith. When you look to the heavens, 
remember, science is just giving us more understanding of how amazing they are. They are just so amazing. The, 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 all the intricacies of creation, they pour out night after night. They reveal knowledge. So, science is just a study of that. That's why Paul says, the Apostle Paul, not this Paul, though he probably says it too. <laughs> In Romans 1.20, he says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Man, now we just get more detail through mathematics and science. Point number two. God's revelation through his word transforms and sustains us into the likeness of Christ. So the first movement was look to heaven. Look at the sun. God is revealing himself. The second movement, verses 7 through 9, we see God revealing himself through his word. Now there's various words in here, and you're going to notice, some of you might have caught this. You went from NIV to ESV. All of these words are kind of interchangeable. Law, uh, commandment, precepts, rules. They're kind of interchangeable and represent the teaching of the Torah. But for cross-references purposes, the ESV is better here. And so I'm focusing on this section with the ESV. Though the words are kind of interchangeable from a cross-reference point so that you can go and find these words throughout the Old Testament in other areas as they are used. It's better to use this version. So the law of the Lord is perfect. Law here using the Hebrew word Torah. And Torah is kind of derived for the word arrow in Hebrew because it's intended to hit the target. The teaching of God is not just some teachings of things to not do. It's supposed to hit your heart. It's supposed to move you. Otherwise, you're just doing religion, baby. You got to let it hit your heart. It's an arrow. Reviving the soul. If you cross-reference that word there, it's very much related to restoring our soul in Psalm 23. It revives us. It gives us new life. That's more than to-dos and to-don'ts. It gives you life. Life abundantly. It's not just to do's and to don'ts. There's something about our human soul that flourishes when we go through these motions, especially when we go through these rhythms in, in the Torah, but we understand them at a heart level. They transform us. The testimony of the Lord is sure. You can see sometimes the usage of testimony in reference to the Ten Commandments. If you do a deep dive, which I can't do here on all of the Torah, what you see is that in the Middle Eastern ancient Israelite context, these laws, all of them, not just the Ten Commandments, were about justice. They were about justice, about caring for people that weren't Israelites, the foreigner. They were about restoring justice when wrong is done to a neighbor. They seem very harsh to us today. They are. <laughs> but back then, to that context, to that people, it was revolutionary. You should listen to rabbis talk about this. 
It was revolutionary to every surrounding culture because of the implication of justice. We're still talking about justice today. Thank God. It makes you wise. That's not to do's and to don'ts. Wisdom is something that happens after I've meditated on law, right? After I've meditated on the why of these laws, I gain wisdom so that I can apply it not on the ancient context, but in today's context. Wisdom. How do I deal with ethical issues today based on something that was taught in a Middle Eastern ancient context? I can learn wisdom by going beyond the to-do and to-dote and to see the heart of God in that, then I can come over here and say, let me live a Torah life. Let me thrive as a disciple of Jesus. Let me live life abundantly. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. These aren't to-dos and to-dotes. They affect your emotions. They give you joy. You know why? Because they tell you how God is so good to you. They tell you how much he loves you. That he loves you so much that he sent his only son so that you would have life. We should rejoice. That's why the gospel is good news. The law, all of his precepts not only make us wise, not only restore us, not only... They make you happy. They rejoice your heart. They enlighten your eyes. We've talked a lot about the fear of the Lord here, so I'm not going to repeat a lot about it except that it's a lot like Pastor Jason shared a few weeks ago. It's like the Grand Canyon. God is like the Grand Canyon, and his precepts make sure that when I go with Katya hiking on the Grand Canyon that I'm doing it with care. Because I want to admire and just be like, oh, wow. But I don't want to be one of those that didn't read the sign that says, don't overstep here. 20 people have died. And then there's always someone that's like, ah, not me. <laughs> like you see, the precepts are meant to give us life. And the fear of the Lord is that healthy understanding of how to live a life in a way that when I step into weirdness with God, it hurts me just because of the nature of what I've done out, you know, in or outside of the steps of God. I'm stepping into areas that I'm supposed to admire, that are supposed to feed me, not that I'm supposed to just go and jump into. So just take today, take this week to look at these verses 7 through 9 and remind yourself that the Torah, the law, is meant to do much more than I shouldn't do this and I should do this. Your heart should be rejoicing, leaping because of who Christ is, because of God's love for us. Your heart or your soul, excuse me, should be revived. It should restore you. After every day of intense labor at work, you're restored, given new life. You should be thinking about justice to the communities around you, not just your community. You should be fearful of the Lord in his grandeur as you step to the edge of the Grand Canyon and just like, whoa, that's how amazing God is. That's what the law of God is. Point number three, God's word 
transforms us through the revealing of our hearts. The psalmist moved from the grandeur of creation. Wow, how great are you, God, how you reveal yourself in nature. Now how great are you, how you reveal yourself in your law, in your precepts, in your teachings, in your wisdom. How great are you? What does that mean about me? What does that imply about me? How do I live in light of who you are? How do I live in light of who you are? Verses 11 through 14 compose this movement. By them referring, referring excuse me, to these commandments, laws, precepts, etc. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So there is something good that comes out of keeping them. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. I've shared here before I have obsessive compulsive disorder. This used to freak me out when I was growing up. I would go talk to the priests. I was like, what, what about the sins I'm not even realizing I'm doing? <laughs> I'm going to step out of this church and I'm already going to sin. Something's going to get in my eye path and I'm going to look wrong somewhere. Something's going to happen, and I'm going to say something with an attitude to someone. Or what about when I'm not even remembering to be nice to someone, and I didn't even realize it? I just sinned. The psalmist is saying, forgive my hidden thought, thoughts. I can't even fathom the fullness of my errors. And that's what's so good about God. His grace covers it. Forgive my hidden faults. That's it. Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins, the ones that we know we're not supposed to, but we do, you know, like, you know, those, those little verbal attacks, like if I'm having an argument with Katya and I, I got this one loaded up, oh man, I'm going to throw this one sentence right here, Armageddon, uh, woo! willful sins. I know what they're going to do. I know what they're going to do. <laughs> But they're not Christ-like. I'm not listening to the Torah, to the precepts of living like Jesus, right? So keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. At the end of that section, the section of how it affects me, he he. He or she, the psalmist says, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So I will give my life, not only will I repent from what I haven't done, or excuse me, what I don't know I've done and what I do know I've done, but also may my words and my thoughts be pleasing to you. For you are my rock and my redeemer. See, God's word, the response to God's word is transformation. There's a reason in Hebrews it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, going through bones and marrow. And a, a commentator I remember said, which I shared here before, it's like the word of God reads us. We don't read the word of God, it reads us. It's a, it's a spiritual x-ray. The response is to see, wow, search me, God. Hidden faults. 
Show me any grievous way in me, as Psalm 139 says, and lead me in the way everlasting. The response from God's word is that it transforms us by revealing to our hearts, revealing our hearts to us. Point number four, the central feature of God's word, what makes God's word so amazing is that it points to the redeemer. Listen to this because this is like the crescendo here. If you follow again, musical analogies, this is the the climax, if you will, of the psalm or of what we can take away from the psalm. The central feature of God's word is that it points to the redeemer. When the psalmist wrote it, maybe the psalmist knew, maybe not, a concrete idea of what that Jesus figure is, but probably not. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They knew it pointed to an anointed one, the Messiah. They were waiting for it. It points, God's word points to the Redeemer. That's what makes it so sweet. They are more precious than gold, the precepts, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Now, here's what's amazing about why it points to a redeemer. We got to step back. Let's zoom out, right? Let's zoom out. (laughs) Zoom out of Psalm 19. See its place in the book of Psalms. John Salehamer, who was the late John Salehamer, an Old Testament expert on the law, on the Pentateuch, he says that in Psalm 19, God's glory is displayed in creation and God's grace is displayed in his word. But more importantly, the placement of Psalm 19 suggests a whole theme that the book of Psalms is trying to communicate with us. Now watch this. There's three Psalms in the book of Psalms that deal heavily with the word. Psalm 1, the introductory one, right? The law. It talks about meditating on the law too. Psalm 19, which we're currently reading And if you like extended editions, like I like the extended editions of Lord of the Rings, if you ever want to read the extended edition of 119, or or of 19, go to Psalm 119, right? It's kind of like the same thing, but extended. Sorry, Jessica's like, I can't believe he geeked out again. (laughs) Each of those, Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, right? They're all about the law, the Torah. Each of those is followed intentionally by messianic psalms. There's law, Messiah. There's law, Messiah. There's law, Messiah. You look at Psalm 2, which follows the law, Psalm 1, and it's about the Messiah. You look at Psalm 19, which we currently read, Psalms 20 through 21, Messiah. You look at Psalm 119, which is about the law, the word of God, And Psalms 120 through 133 are messianic psalms. John Salehammer says the point is that when the compendium of these psalm scrolls was put together, they were intentionally placed in an order to balance God's word with God's anointed one. God's word with God's anointed one. Because the means of redemption of us, of our redemption, are God's word and his anointed one. From beginning to end in this compendium, this encyclopedia we call the Bible, it's God's word and his anointed one. 
But here's what's crazier. The whole point of the means of redemption being partly God's word is that God's word points to the anointed one. That's the whole point. That's why there's life in the scripture. Because it points to the redeemer, to the anointed one, to the Messiah, to the Christ. Take your synonym for it. Whatever it is, it points to the one we need. It points to the one we need. God's word and the Messiah are the means for salvation, for redemption. How on earth does it do that? How does it point us to the, to the Redeemer? How does this meditation on law point us to the Redeemer? Well, the first thing it does is that the Word reveals who the Father is. The Word reveals who the Father is. You know, when, when Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father, Jesus says, don't you recognize me? He's the Redeemer. But the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Anointed One, is exactly God's revelation, right? The Son is the image of the invisible God, we're told in Colossians by Paul. The Word reveals who the Father is through the Anointed One. So again, Scripture, God's Word, the Torah, and the Messiah, Together working to reveal who the Father is. You find what the law has been saying all along about God vivified in the Messiah. Scripture tells us who God is. Also, it tells us that we need a rabbi. The, the, God's word tells us that we need a rabbi who can remind us of how to live beyond just to do's and to don'ts. It tells us like Jesus teaches us. Jesus teaches us about love, not just to do's and to don'ts. He tells us to love our enemies. He teaches us to value the least and the lost, to go for those that both religion and society repudiate. He teaches us to forgive, to be humble. We need a rabbi, right? That, uh, that rabbi is the anointed one, the Messiah, God's word shows us we need someone to help us live beyond just to do's and to don'ts. The Messiah shows us how to live it at a deep, profound level. Again, we need a redeemer. We need a Christ. We need a Messiah. God's word shows it to us. We need a redeemer also because we just can't help ourselves. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, he says. He didn't come to abolish the Torah, God's word. He came to fulfill it, to be the perfect image of God. What we were supposed to do in Eden, the anointed one is doing, and he is doing it for us because we can't live it. Ironically, <laughs> ironically, that's what empowers us to do it, Jesus himself. Not only does he fulfill the law, he now in powers us to live the law. So again, in this psalm, we see God's word, or God revealed through his word, but that revelation itself points to the anointed one, to the Messiah, to the one who empowers us, who redeems us, who teaches us as a rabbi, and who reveals who the Father is. Everything the word has been doing and pointing to, vivified, personified in Jesus. 
That's how good the anointed one is. That's how good it is. So when we think about empowerment, just think about what Jesus said in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Amen. (laughs) Apart from him, we can't do anything. We need this anointed one, this Messiah, this Redeemer, because he needs to empower us because we can't do it. He needs to live the way that we should live because we can't do it. He needs to teach us to live beyond just to do and to don't. He reveals who the Father is. I just love that Jesus shows us a Father who is so concerned with us. So concerned that he gives up the anointed one for us. He knows you by name. He knows you by name. And he will leave the 99 for you. He will leave the 99 for you. That's who the anointed one reveals is our father. And no one will snatch us out of the hand of the father. So good. As a worship team comes back, may we use Psalm 22 as a model of life and maybe also as a prayer, as a way to start our day as we look to the sun, the rising of the sun, the start of the day. We appreciate nature and we see that even though science has something to say about it, all it's doing is putting a magnifying glass on it showing us how intricately more amazing nature is than we ever thought to realize. It is so insane, the discoveries that we find, that they lead us to worship a father who creates, who designs a world to yell at us that he loves us, to yell at us in his word, I love you, and I want you to flourish. Yell is probably not the best, right? (laughs) You know, like, I love you. It was supposed to be romantic. It didn't work. (laughs) He wants to tell us. He's desperate to tell us, I love you. I love you. May we see in his word more than what to do and what not to do, but wisdom rejoicing in our hearts. May we see life. May we see transformation, life abundantly. May we see society transformed and ultimately as we see the condition of our hearts, we seek that redeemer. Father, I pray that you would bless us. Bless us, Father, to always look to the beauty of creation, the big and the small, the galactic, the biological, the chemical, the mathematical, That we would be awed by a world that you made for us to enjoy and to find you in. Father, we seek your breath, your Holy Spirit, even through the wind in nature. The Hebrew word ruach for your spirit hovering the waters as it says in Genesis. The wind is meant to remind us that you are here. May we worship you as we look at creation. May then... We turn to your word, not just for a list, 
but for life for rejoicing, for love, for grace, mercy, justice, for the totality of who you are revealed to us in your word. And finally, may that transform us as we look for and depend on the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. Jesus, permeate through our lives in our worship and in our deeds, in our hearts. We pray all of this in the mighty name of Yeshua. Amen. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.